Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Interesting. The disciples thought that the Lord was going to bring in that kingdom. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why Peter had a sword and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, thinking that the Lord was going to bring in that kingdom. And so that brings us to our passage here tonight, Mark chapter 10, verse number 35. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 32 says, they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them. So he's rushing ahead of them. He's got that determination. We talked about the servant's determination last week. So we're in that same context. Okay, They're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus being pressed in the Spirit to go there, he has his face set like a flint to go up to Jerusalem. So he's determined to do that. So they're still on the way. And James and John, verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of the first that Jesus called, and seemed to be a part of that small group of Peter, James, and John that were close to the Savior, Peter, or James and John, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Let, let's go back to that previous section. Jesus was making his way up to Jerusalem, and he says in verse 33, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered into the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. Now we know exactly what Jesus was talking about when he made that prophecy of his death, burial, and resurrection. There is some suggestion that the disciples didn't think that this was a literal death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus was talking about. Since they had in mind this kingdom coming, that Jesus would go up to Jerusalem, he'd be this uh, persecuted here for these three days, but then he would rise above it, that would be the resurrection, and usher in the kingdom. So we find James and John saying to him, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on the right hand and the other on the left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, I think they're thinking about the kingdom, not what we for refer to as future glory, but the kingdom that they thought Jesus was going to set up at that time. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? 
And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized withal shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other ten, besides James and John, heard what these two were looking for. Evidently they pulled Jesus aside, but the ten heard of it. They began to be much displeased with James and John. I think I would be too. (laughs) And Jesus called them unto him, and saith unto him, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What we find in this passage of Scripture is James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, exercising, expressing, maybe the word for it, ambition to be in a place of leadership in the Lord's kingdom. Now that ambition is not necessarily a bad ambition, to be in a place of leadership in any place, a place of work, a place in the church, in the future kingdom, or whatever it might be. But I want to look at the servant and his ambition tonight. And I'll have to give you the outline as we go. There are seven points to this, seven sections to this. The first I want to look at is the deceitfulness of wrong ambition. There is wrong and right ambition. And I think there's something to what James and John is doing that was wrong. There's deceitfulness here. And notice what they're doing. Evidently, they're pulling the Lord aside uh, secretly. And that's because we read in verse 41, when the ten heard of it. So the ten didn't see this right off the bat. It's possible that they pulled Jesus. If Jesus is walking far ahead of them, maybe James and John rushed ahead to catch him and said, hey, let's go talk to him now about this. I don't know if it's in the same vein here, but the mother of James and John also was involved. It doesn't say it here in our Mark passage. It might be the same uh, sort of thing, trying to get a position in the coming kingdom. But it's a secret visit. And a lot of deceitfulness, of wrong ambition, is couched in a realm of secrecy. We make plans and seek to be ambitious about one thing or another. Now, secrecy is not necessarily a bad thing. You don't want to express perhaps all of your thought and ambitions, even though they may be godly, to everybody around you. So secrecy itself may not be a bad thing, but a lot of times the deceitfulness of wrong ambition is couched in secrecy. You usually don't hear people say, I'm going to take over the country. I'm going to you know, do something bad here with, my, with a bad ambition. They usually don't pray that. It's usually done in secret. They also make an unlimited appeal. Notice what they said. They said to him, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Oh, Jesus is a friend of ours. We're on his good side. Oh, sure. Fellas, what would you like? I think that's probably what they expected. But Jesus didn't do that. 
you know, I've had people come to me and ask certain things. Basically, I'm going to put it the way that they're really saying it. Pastor, are you going to agree with me or not on this? You know, what do you think about But they want me to agree with them. This question of, will you do what I ask you? You can keep a promise, can't you? Well, now, it depends on what your promise is. If I can't answer, yes, I can keep a promise. Because if you're going to tell me that you're abusing your kids at home, I've got to report that to the officials. So I can't say I can keep a promise. So it depends on what you're telling me. I have to be into the place nowadays. Well, listen, if you're going to tell me something bad that's illegal, you realize I'm going to have to report this. But that's the way we are today. It's a different world. And so we just can't have an open-ended, can you answer my request? What is it that people say to you? I have a favor. Can you do a favor? Well, it depends on what the favor is. I might be able to do it, might not be able to do it. Is it going to violate my convictions as a Christian? Is it going to be something illegal? We just can't have an open-ended yes to that. That's the deceitfulness of wrong ambition. We need to be careful about doing that as Christians to others, being sneaky about things. Again, it's not necessary. You have to use the wisdom of the Lord. Wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. To know what needs to be, what information needs to be dispelled. Let's look at the second section. The possible motives for ambition. Possible motives for ambition. Now these are not necessarily in the text. We don't really know what's motivating James and John to do this. But we know from our own experience and the experiences of many around us that these the motives can be part of. There's the motive of favoritism. And this is evidently part of James and John's thinking. Maybe Peter was involved with this as well. They were a part of this, can we call it this, a favorite circle? Does the Lord have favorites? I think he does. Is it wrong to have favorites? No, I don't think so. They were a part of this inner circle around Christ. You find them, of course, often in that a special relationship. Well, if you're in that circle, Let's suppose you were Peter, James, and John, not Andrew or Bartholomew or Judas or any of the other disciples. And you're watching them. I mean, there's two ways this can go. Peter, James, and John can say, hey, fellows, look at us. We're, we're in this special group. We're really close to the Lord. The others could watch that and say, oh, you guys think you're big stuff. See, what the devil wants is to drive that wedge between those groups. And that happens in churches as well. So the feelings of being special, the motive of favoritism. Everybody wants to be the favored person. When you're in the school, you talked about the teacher's pet, right? Ah, you're the teacher's pet. You butter up to the teacher. Well, teachers have favorites. I know they're taught not to, they're not supposed to. But it is very difficult not to have favorites. Your favorites are the students that do what they're told. Do their homework. And all that sort of thing. That's the way it works. Do you have favorite children of yours? Well, you're not supposed to. Supposed to be my three favorite sons. Or my two favorite daughters and my two favorite sons. But it's easy to feel that certain people are favored over others. The motive of favoritism. 
Now, what that does promote is a spirit of competition then. And there's a place where competition is right in God's work, but there's also a place, I think, where competition is deadly. And so favoritism. There's also the motive of wealth. We don't know a whole lot about Zebedee, the father of James and John, but in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 20, when the two men were called, it says they left their father's net and the hired servants. So we understand from that that Zebedee had a fishing business with hired servants. So he's probably a wealthy man. Somebody else suggested going to Mark chapter 14. We haven't gotten that far in our study of Mark. Mark chapter 14, verse 54, when Peter's following the Lord into the various palaces. Verse 54, And Peter followed him afar off, even unto the palace of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Somebody suggested here that Peter was familiar with this as he would have been possibly working with James and John in the fishing business. Now the palace in Jerusalem is a long way from Capernaum. The thought is that this Zebedee would have owned such a fishing business large enough to furnish fish for the palace. Well, I don't know whether there's any truth to that or not. But there is, certainly, in our life today, the motivation of wealth. We want to have a position because of the wealth that it brings. And, of course, wealth can make a man self-centered. It's all about you and your money, whether you have that money. And those who have wealth often want more. I forget who it was that was asked. What He was a wealthy man. How much money does it take for you to be happy? And his answer was, just a little bit more. Always want more. That's just kind of the way it works. I remember when I was in seminary, Dr. McCune used to tell us in seminary, uh, encourage us not to quit seminary. He said, it's rough, we understand that. But he said, get your bread and and eat it without butter. In other words, save some money, don't buy butter. (laughs) Just do something to stay in seminary. Don't let wealth keep you from doing the ministry. Of course, the Bible talks about, in fact, Mark does it, Jesus talks about it in his parable to of the four soils in Mark chapter 4, verse 19. He talked about the deceitfulness of riches. Paul mentioned to Timothy that the love of money was the root of all evil. So the deceitfulness of riches, money or wealth, can make a person self-centered and they often want more. So the motive of wealth. Another possible motive for ambition is the motive for, I'm going to give you several words here, power, position, influence, prestige, even authority, honor may be in there. That's all kind of one thought there. Why was it that James and John wanted to sit on the right hand and the left in Jesus' kingdom? What happens with those are positions, aren't they? Those are places of authority. That's not only a place of prestige, but it is a place where we can command people to do things from those positions. You know, we talk about people who are, um, what's the word, power hungry. Uh, it's not the word I'm looking for, but, but people like that. And so uh, that's a possible motive for ambition, to have power, have a position have the prestige, the influence, the authority, and so forth. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
Paul is preaching, but he is using his own example in this passage as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how Paul was a servant amongst the Corinthians. Let's begin looking at verse 24. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no man seek his own, his own glory, his own prestige, his own power, authority, whatever, but every man another's wealth. Well, we insert that word wealth into the context of our King James text. And then move ahead to verse 33. Paul says, and, and we, there's verses in between there giving false testimony. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Profiting others. So, with power, prestige, position, not seeking mine own profit. Another motive, possible motive for ambition, is the motive of social status. If I get this position, I'll have a position in authority. Evidently, that was a part of James and John's thinking, being accepted within this uh, society in which they lived. I guess that can come to anybody, but we usually think of that in societies, hoity-toity. Do you know what that word means? Hoity-toity societies, you know, highfalutin. People think they're all that, you know, that those kind of societies. They're the ones looking for social status. Well, you've got to marry somebody who's rich because it's going to make me look like I'm poor. So, you know, you can't mess with my social status, that kind of idea. And then there's the motive of love, faith, and loyalty. When ambition is rooted in the Lord and steeped in his love and his loyal loyalty, it is always right and healthy. And so there is the possibility that James and John wanted to be next to Jesus because they were sensing some degree of love and loyalty to him. I don't get that impression myself as I read this story, but there's a possibility that that is... And that's a good motive for ambition. Okay, so let's go to the third section. The price of ambition. What Jesus is pointing out to these men... And, and he's going to include not just James and John with this, but all of the disciples. Jesus pointed, he's straightforward about it, pulling no punches about these two ambitious men. He says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Let's look at it, verse 38. But Jesus said unto them, ye know not what ye ask. And then he asked them two questions. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? There is a price to be paid for ambition. You're going to suffer many things. The cup, I think, has to do with his suffering, as well as the baptism. Are you willing to suffer with me? He just predicted in the previous verses he is going to be delivered up to the scribes and to the Pharisees, and condemned to death, delivered to the Gentiles, mocked and scourged and spit upon and killed. Are you willing to go through that to sit at my right hand and my left? Again, they probably didn't understand what he's talking about. So their answer was, yes, we can. But there's a price to pay for ambition. That's true in anything. If you're going to rise to a position, and there's a right motive for that, nothing wrong with rising to a 
position of authority or a position of power or prestige or whatever if you have the right motive with it. But there is often a price to be paid to get to that place. So if you really want to achieve that position, you have to go for it. Most people get those positions through hard work, usually not handed to us or inherited or whatever. It's usually through some kind of hard work. Of course, there's lots of people that do things dishonestly. Let's go to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Luke 9, 23 and 24. And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me. That's what James and John were saying. They wanted to come after the Lord and sit with him in his kingdom. He says, Let him pay the price. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Are you able to drink of the cup and to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now let's talk about those two things, drinking of the cup and being baptized with the baptism. Both of those, I believe, are talking about the suffering that Jesus was about to do. What do you do with a cup? A cup, of course, has some kind of a liquid. You drink from the cup, and whatever's in the cup gets inside of you, right? When you're baptized, what happens to you when you're baptized? You are taken and placed into the water, the liquid. Okay, so two opposite ways. So the cup, I think refers more to the internal suffering, the inward agony that Jesus was about to suffer, praying in the garden, sweating great drops of blood, and dying, I believe, of a broken inward heart, suffering all of that for us. The baptism, on the other hand, would refer to the external sufferings, the whippings, the scourgings, the spitting, all of those things. Jesus was about to face all of those. And so he's asking his disciples, are you able and willing to drink of the cup and to be baptized with the baptism? Now, it's not a literal baptism, okay? I don't think that Jesus is talking about here. He had already been baptized, so it's a baptism has the idea of identification. Are you willing to be identified with the suffering that I'm about to go through? They really didn't understand that. But that's a question for us as disciples. Are we willing to drink of the cup and to be baptized with... And he said, you shall drink of the cup and you shall be baptized with the baptism. They did suffer. We learn later in history, not from the Bible, that I think all of the disciples except for John, who evidently died on the Isle of Patmos, suffered persecution and were crucified and other things. And so they did suffer martyrdom much like the Lord Jesus did. So that's a good question for us. The Christian who truly lives and witnesses for Christ will. They that live godly shall suffer persecution. Okay, So we shall drink of the cup. Are we willing to do that? I think when that persecution comes, that will be a deciding factor to separate those who are willing to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Christ, and those who are, oh, well, I was just kind of following for the fun of it, or whatever. I don't know what reason they might give. Okay? And, of course, James. James was killed. John, he wasn't killed. 
but he lived to be somewhere around 100 years of, of age. Of course, wrote the book of Revelation. Just how he died, we don't know, but he also would have somehow drank of that cup and be baptized with a suffering in some way, even though we don't know how he actually died. Let's talk about the fourth section, the prerogative of God in ambition. Back to what Jesus is saying to these disciples. He said, you shall eat of this, or drink of the cup, you shall be baptized, but, it's verse 40, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give. Okay, he doesn't explain it here, but evidently that's a decision made by the Father and determined, probably we could say, before the foundation of the world. That was God's prerogative. Okay, so the Lord says that he doesn't have the choice to make that decision But notice there's some things about this. There will be some who sit at his right hand and his left. I have this idea that the chair on the right and the chair on the left is a big chair. And there's not just one person who gets to sit there, but maybe several. That's my idea. That there will be some others who will be closer to the Lord than just one person. And I think he's referring to the kingdom age. And I do believe that David will have one of those positions. He'll be of a higher position than than the rest of Old Testament Israelites in the coming kingdom. So there's some things like that. But there's also the idea of the right to reign. And that's all determined by God. If we understand some of the things that are happening will happen in the kingdom, the saints will rule and reign with him, and the nation of Israel will be the leading nation. So... There's some reference to being over a city and who's going to be the mayor of Chicago, who's going to be, you know, the mayor of Milwaukee and all that sort of thing. And that's all up to the Lord to determine that. I think that's what this passage is telling us, that we don't determine. Well, there's a principle of this. Who determines who's going to be the pastor of a church or to be in positions? Well, ultimately, it's the Lord, right? Even though we as the people vote on a pastor and choose and elect a pastor, it's ultimately God who puts people into position. We learn that about the king, right? Who puts the king in the position? He's put there by God. We don't like that and understand all of that, but that's a Bible principle. God puts up and puts down. So the prerogative for ambition really belongs to the Lord. Nothing necessarily with seeking having an ambitious determination to have a position, but it's all up to the Lord. Some people get mad at the Lord when the Lord decides, you don't belong in that position. I'm going to put somebody else there. If it's up to the Lord, then that's what's wise and right. And just let it with the Lord. In a sense, who cares? It's God's decision as to who sits on that right hand and on that left hand. So, that takes us to the fifth section, the potential conflict among men with ambition. It's not wrong to have ambition, but there is also potential conflict among men with ambition. James and John are asking for this position, and then when the other two heard about this, what happens? Look at what happens. Verse number uh, 41, when the ten heard it, it says they began to be much displeased with James and John. If Peter, James, and John were in a place of a leadership amongst the disciples, 
and the, the other ten are watching, James and John being perhaps leaders, and they're saying, well, I thought you guys were the cream of the crop here. What's going on here? Why do you have such a wrong ambitious attitude? I'm sure we could agree with this, that what James and John are doing is a lot of selfishness there. Section number six, the greatness of good ambition. There is such a thing as good ambition. Jesus did not find fault with ambition on the whole. That wasn't the problem here. True ambition is not self-seeking. True ambition is Christ-honoring. We are ambitious about this. We want this position so that we can ultimately honor Christ. That's what it's all about. So, the servant and his ambition. Nothing wrong with being ambitious. We ought to be ambitious. But we ought to have the right attitudes. This is Dr. Lee Hennice, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached at church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again.